Ryan Eller is a descendant of nine generations from Appalachia. Reverend Ryan M. Eller is the executive director of Define America, the nation's leading media and culture organization using the power of story to transcend politics and shift the conversation around immigrants, identity, and citizenship. Define American was named one of the most innovative companies in the world by Fast Company in 2019 and called, quote, one of the most effective social justice organizations of our generation, end quote, by the Center for Media and Social Impact. Prior to Define American, Ryan was the U.S. Campaigns Director at Change.org. He is ordained by First Baptist Church of High Point, North Carolina in 2007, former officer in the U.S. Navy Chaplain Corps, um, and his work can be seen on Fox News, CNN, NBC, Sojourners, Political Associated, Baptist Press, and more. Everybody, please give a warm welcome to Reverend Ryan Eller. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Reverend. Thank you for having me. Uh, didn't realize, Jesus, you are a rock star in this church and community. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, a story that I once heard from a minister in Appalachia, where I'm from, um, who was called to become pastor of uh, a country church. And he got up for the first uh, sermon in the congregation and uh, really prepared for weeks for this sermon. And at the end, of course, there was a receiving line, and Miss Jones, who always sat in the front row, was a staple in this church, um, came to him in the receiving line and said, wow, you sure are something else. And the pastor said, oh, well, thank you, Miss Jones. And he came home feeling really, really good about himself and his sermon. And so he came back the next week, same preparation, New congregation, Miss Jones comes to the receiving line. We sure are something else. So he goes home and he feels really, really good. And on the third Sunday, here comes Miss Jones again. And he, uh, he sees Miss Jones coming. She's got that same look. She's locked in. Well, you sure are something else, Pastor. And he said, Well, Miss Jones, can you tell me more? And she said, Yeah, you sure are something else because you sure ain't a preacher. <laughs> well, luckily for you, I am on occasion a preacher. I'm really humbled to be here, especially humbled to speak to you in Jesus' congregation because of his work that he is doing to change the narrative and his bravery in sharing his story. My faith tradition, we have a saying, you probably do as well, we usually use it on Ash Wednesday and at funerals. And it's from dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Scientifically, I am told that when a body enters the ground, it will completely decompose within six to eight years. In the great cycle of life, our ancestors, all of those whose shoulders we stand upon, provide nutrients for the soil. And whether you believe in everlasting life or not, each of us are here temporarily. We're here for a short time. And while we're here, we've been sent to do some work. The work of love, the work of justice. 
One might say we're all here on a temporary work visa. And when that work is complete, our bodies are going to go into the ground. And they're still going to be about the process of producing life. The food that we eat, that all the animals in the land eat, is grown up from the dirt in the ground. So the question for all of us, really, is what are we going to do with our time in between birth and the moment that we join our ancestors? And as people of faith, love, justice, people who understand that we're on this earth for a short time, we should avoid acting holier than thou based upon our immigration status. Since ultimately... We're all sent here by God on a temporary work visa. Last year, according to the United Nations, more people migrated globally than at any time in human history. That broke the record of the previous year, which broke the record of the previous year in 2016. Of these human beings moving from one place to another, more people were forcibly migrated than at any time since the enslavement of people from Africa. Many immigrants are, as has been pointed out too rarely in the media, indeed fleeing horrific violence. But the reason for record-breaking forced migration is a new pull factor, one that will be the reality for the remainder of our lives and that is global climate change. More often than not, these two push-pull factors behind migration, violence and climate change, are intermingled. As it was for the very first person I met during one of my trips to the U.S.'s southern border. Is this really America? She asked me. Her hair was tied up in the same plastic bags that tied together her tattered shoelaces. Her four-year-old son played all around us with some toys that had been donated by the Catholic Church there in McAllen, Texas. I said, nervous about what she had just been through on her 40-day journey walking from Honduras to the United States, yes, welcome to America. You're safe now. A haunting statement I can no longer make when I speak to newcomers. This was 2014, in the middle of a hot summer. Maria had made the journey to the U.S. because in her home of Honduras, a country with the highest murder rate in the world at the time, it was more dangerous than Syria. And gangs were recruiting her son. In the early 1990s, then-President Clinton deported hundreds of people who had been recruited into and hardened in ga as gang members here in our country, followed by CAIA-backed coups, the region known as the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, had a power vacuum, and ready to fill it were multi-billion dollar cartels cartels that just needed the muscle and found it in the gang members we shipped to their country. 
Now, Maria was a successful businesswoman. Her husband was a farmer, and the family owned a massive tract of land in the foothills. But after seasons of drought caused by severe shifts in the climate, the money started to dry up. Her husband left to go work with family here in the United States. And just months later, the gang started knocking on Maria's door. She tells me that they first asked for $5,000, that she'd need to pay it or they would murder her son. So she paid. A few weeks later, the same gang members showed up at her door. Give me $10,000, they said. Or your son can join our gang. She got nervous and said, I don't have any more money. I gave you all that I have. So they said, we'll be back later to get our money. Figure it out. Later that night, gang members come back with the severed head of the neighbor boy across the street. Said, you have 24 hours to give us $10,000. That's when Maria packed up what she could carry and left town. This summer, when I went to El Paso, just days before a white nationalist murdered dozens in a Walmart, there were 17,000, 17,000, 17,000 refugee families at the border. In the same situation as Maria, forcibly camped, begging for an opportunity to apply for asylum. Our government was letting two people cross per day just to apply. I was first introduced to how our nation treats undocumented Americans by chance, really. I was the lead organizer of an interfaith group in North Carolina called Communities Helping All Neighbors Gain Empowerment. And after an action that we had with our governor, I was pulled into the chapel where about 300 members of our Latinx caucus were gathered. I thought my job was simply to come into that room and thank everybody for coming. Appreciate your time. See you next week. But as I thanked them, a couple of very large men stood at the door in a chapel just like this one, and I saw my path was blocked. And I started getting nervous. I didn't know what was happening. And I said, sorry, I really do need to go. We've got an evaluation in the other room. And that's when my friend Pedro stood up. And he said, Ryan, we need IDs. And I said, that's great, Pedro. Let's talk about that next week. We really do have an evaluation we got to do over in the other room. Thank you all for coming. And dozens of people started standing up. Ryan, we need IDs. Pedro came to the podium, and he said, Ryan, you know that couple months that you couldn't get a hold of me, wasn't showing up to meetings, just was pretty absent? I said, yeah, Pedro, that's pretty easy to remember. He said, well, I was out searching for my wife and my daughter. Searched for them for two weeks. I couldn't find them. Turned out they had been in an automobile accident out on the highway. 
and they died. But they didn't have IDs. Because they were undocumented, nobody could identify their bodies. We need IDs, he said. California is only one of 14 states that allow undocumented Americans to get driver's licenses. So we're here. A great mentor of mine said, uh, you, you don't know if you're going to be invited back, so tell the truth. So it's in that spirit that I want to make no mistake. The modern movement for immigrant freedom, the movement to define American, has very little to do with laws and everything to do with race and power. Apartheid was legal. The Holocaust was legal. Slavery was legal. Jim Crow is legal. It's in that heritage that we must reckon with the fact that the soil our ancestors lay in can either be life-giving or life-taking. We're a nation that at our founding, my friend Jim Wallace likes to say, we suffered from two original sins. The attempted genocide, and I would argue continued cultural genocide of indigenous people, and the enslavement of people from Africa. In an attempt to repent from these sins, a great number of people brought together a movement here in the 1960s that we call civil rights. And guided by their faith, prophetic witness, and persistent resistance, a group of citizens of color for the first time really in U.S. history in a major way defeated white nationalist organizations. And in the aftermath of those defeats, we forgot that white supremacists didn't just go away. In their misshapen moral model, there was no way they could have been defeated by people of color. After all, in their mind, people of color were intellectually inferior. So who then is cunning enough to defeat them, they thought. Some of you in this room may have an idea. They said Jewish people. So it was out of the defeats in the 1960s that the modern narrative of white nationalism was born. As outlined in the best-selling book called The Jewish Question by former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke, this is a narrative that suggests that Jewish people, in order to gain power, are recruiting, sometimes through the control of the media, people of color to migrate to the United States so they can have power. It's no wonder, then, that the same rhetoric that was used by the young men who marched in Charlottesville chanting blood and soil, the Jews and immigrants will not replace us, was the same rhetoric used by the terrorists in the Pittsburgh Temple shooting, the same rhetoric that was used in El Paso at the Walmart shooting, the same rhetoric that was used in the Gilroy shooting, and indeed the attempted poisoning of the water system at a synagogue in Colorado just last week. Each attack has happened in a place that welcomed immigrants, because welcoming immigrants is what they're truly afraid of. This hateful narrative, combined with anxieties over the rapidly shaping demographics in our nation, 
demands those of us who believe in a God that's bigger than any nation to ask some tough questions. What does it mean to be a citizen in a kingdom of God, in a nation, Jesus, that doesn't allow millions to obtain citizenship? To any Christians in this room, what does it mean to follow a Jewish man named Jesus, who himself was a young immigrant, who at an early age fled to Egypt without asking permission to relocate from any governing authority? Now, my rabbi uh, friend, Mark Strauss-Cohn, tells me that the Hebrew word ger, probably mispronounced that. Good. It's the closest word to our concept of immigrant. And this appears 92 times in the Old Testament alone. Not once in those 92 passages does it suggest mistreating an immigrant. So I would like to suggest today that we can not on the one hand claim to be a nation of laws and yet apply laws differently for those who have wealth and those who do not. As we do now for those who are wealthy and want to migrate to the United States and those who aren't. We cannot on the one hand claim to be a nation of justice and yet turn away as our brothers and sisters are raped of their basic human rights to worship freely, obtain health care, and work without fear. We cannot, on the one hand, claim to be a nation of families and yet actively support a system of government that needlessly rips families apart from one another. We cannot, on the one hand, claim to be a nation of immigrants and, on the other hand, deny immigrants in our midst the honor of carrying forward their dreams, as the President and the Supreme Court seems to be prepared to do by ending DACA for 700,000 young people like Jesus. And that's why I'm here today. Thank you for this opportunity. On the shoulder of one of your former Bay Area residents, the great organizer Harvey Milk, I'm here to recruit you. It's the great grandson of Abigail dragging canoe of the Cherokee people. I want to recruit you into a movement to define American. A movement that reconciles with the theft of some of our ancestors, the theft of even the land that we're on right now, the land of the Ramaytush alone, and to a movement where we'll have an opportunity to unpack the continued destructiveness of colonial systems. As the grandson of Ruth Eller, an Appalachian woman who in her poverty turned to being a prison guard and in doing so was caught up in the continuation of that system. I want to recruit you into a difficult conversation. As someone who comes from a state in Kentucky where our number one economic development strategy seems to be the building of prisons to house immigrants and poor people. I'm here to recruit you into movement where we're defined by our shared values of inclusion and freedom, not just by our race or our economic class. As the ancestor of Peter Eller, a man who fled his homeland seeking religious freedom, I want to recruit you into a movement that asks, what does it mean to have this citizenship in a country that confuses its heritage 
of inclusion and religious liberty with so-called Christian nationalism. And as a person who's worn the uniform of this nation, I want to recruit you into a movement that is a serious about its love for all Americans, undocumented and documented. Americans of all races and creeds and no particular creed at all. In a nation that loves Americans so much that they refuse to see them in cages. Refuse to see us fail to live up to the great moral calling of our country to bring about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people. And as a proud citizen of a strange nation, a nation that steals land, kidnaps, this year alone, over 70,000 children separating from their families and concentrating them in cages. And yet, in that same nation that spreads the hope-filled narratives of a dream, of liberty, of freedom, but places more people in bondage than any other nation in the globe. I'm here to recruit you into crafting a new moral narrative for this nation. Because in our time here on earth, until we join our ancestors in the dirt, we can choose to close our eyes to climate refugees, choose to build walls between one another, to act out of fear and a sense of scarcity, or we can choose to save the very soul of America, to be hope-filled welcomers, to provide sanctuary and housing for those in need. Because migration from one place to another is really a natural part of the human experience. People move from towns and cities all across countries, across oceans, continents every day. People move as their whole selves to be free to be safe, to work, to eat, to explore, explore for love. They move for joy, for faith, for art, and to realize their full potential. And at some point, all of our ancestors did the same, bringing us the life that we now have. They heeded the call inscribed on the Statue of Liberty to give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, masses yearning to breathe free. They did so because people who are truly alive bring life to others. Because free people, free people. Healed people, healed people. Loved people, love people. Liberated people, liberate people. So finally, Spark Church and this community here in Palo Alto and all gathered. Today, I'm here to recruit you into do more with your ministries than you could have ever thought was possible. You are here on a temporary work visa. The question is, what will that work be about? I never really gave up on singing. I knew that it was always a part of me, that I'd never really be happy without it. My name is Julie Yin Kim, and I'm a singer-songwriter. I grew up in Koreatown, Los Angeles, and I loved it because it's, it's a place where we see three different cultures come together. There's the American culture, but there's also a very big Korean presence and a huge Latin culture as well. So I grew up listening to mariachi music with my neighbors very late into the night and Christian music, gospel music. 
that kind of music has been my life. I was four years old when I moved to the States. I knew that my family had certain issues with our immigration status from the very beginning. I am undocumented. My family and I, we've been here for 23 years and we've had multiple green card processes. Each were denied. The third time, I turned 21 the day after our rejection notice. Um, so I aged out. I couldn't be filed under my parents anymore. So I've been on my own ever since. And today, my sister is a citizen. My two parents are green card holders. So it's just me. Undocumented people are always on survival mode. We feel that we don't have the luxury, both mentally, emotionally, and just time-wise, to spend on things that we don't think are going to produce results or something that's not going to pay at the end of the day. We're not very big risk takers sometimes. And so I never had it in me to pursue music full time. I was always very scared. Every day, there was so much anxiety, there was so much dread, there was so much uncertainty, because at any moment it could all go away. But there was never a part of me that wanted to stop altogether. I took part in a jazz album called American Dreamers. I had a really small part, <laughs> to be honest. And the album was nominated for three Grammys. So I was at the Grammys this year. <laughs> Julie Kim. Julie, come on up. Uh, Julie is an amazing singer. You're going to hear much from her in years to come. You know, it was a very bittersweet moment. It, it came kind of as an awakening. You know, these are the things that you wanted, and you're here by other means, by very humbling means. Maybe with the right work, you can be here again. It pushed me to work harder, even if it's not for a Grammy, um, just so that I don't have to feel incomplete again, and just so that I don't have to feel like I'm missing something. In my life, I found that I do not have the luxury of being empathetic. I have to be involved. I have to let people know that I'm here and that there are people like me here who are undocumented, who are women, who are marginalized, who are not silent. In addition to Jesus' story and Ryan sharing, um, there's an art installation in the room that you may have noticed. Um, this is Mark Tushman um, with his photography. I'm going to ask him to come up and just share a little bit about the art. Well, thank you. It's it's a little intimidating following Ryan and Jesus, but <laughs> forgive me. Um, so um, I'm a photographer, and I've been documenting immigrants and their stories for the last um, year and a half. And I think to date, I think I've photographed and interviewed uh, over 120 immigrants from all walks of life, from those that are undocumented uh, those seeking asylum, uh, DACA recipients, those with all sorts of visas, and those with full citizenship. And I basically focused on groups of people that are being targeted um, by our uh, government, uh, being discriminated against. And um, I guess it's my attempt, my work, to really try to uh, humanize immigrants and uh, try and help bridge th this horrible divide in our country and the false rhetoric that's uh, 
being used to describe immigrants. And briefly, um, I invite you to just, this is just a little sample. And um, please read the, uh, their stories. They're, they're really more important than the photos. And um, the whole point of um, my work is to get these exhibits into the purple states and to get people to vote and to vote for a new president in 2020. And uh, I feel our country's basically hanging on by uh, the tips of its fingertips right now. <clears throat> so um, if anybody has any suggestions of venues in purple states or wants to help with this project, please come and see me. And, and uh, while you're here, I, please uh, enjoy the exhibit. Thank you. Uh, Yosemar Reyes is a poet from here in the Bay Area, uh, grew up in San Jose, um, and was our first undocumented artist in residence at Define America. And um, he performed this poem that you're about to hear um, at an event. I can't even recall, honestly, where it was, but we thought it was so powerful that we needed to um, turn it into a video. And almost providentially, the video came out um, right after uh, the election in 2016. And it was the first video that was played at the big march that happened um, uh, right after the inauguration. And since then has been seen by more than 7 million people because every time uh, the immigrant community feels like it's under attack, this video seems to uh, create a sense of resilience. I think you'll see why. I love my undocumented people. I love us because every day we wake up to a country that hates us. We wake up Give thanks to God and go to work. Watch the news. Hear how our own TVs vilify us. We change the channel and pray that tomorrow will be a better day for us. When they give us a little breathing room, we make the most of it. We're so grateful that often we forget we deserve better. That all this mess is not our fault. We stay low on the radar. Want peace. Want to exist without the added stress of having to be public about where our spirits ache. We just want to go to work to feed our families, yet we become scapegoats to a system that is addicted to exploiting the poor. I love my undocumented people because the way our spirits are toyed with, you need some unfathomable strength. I love us because we have constantly had to prove our humanity and constantly done it beautifully because to stay human under these conditions, you have to have an understanding of beauty. I love us. 
Even when our stories are manipulated and exploited. Even when we are presented as gloom and doom narratives. I love us. Because at the end of the day, somehow we always manage to make something out of nothing. I love my undocumented people. Because being undocumented is not political, it's not physical, it is a condition created to keep us from smiling. But look at us, thriving, 